And now I think we're almost all here. Not quite everybody, but um, it's just remarkable, I think, the effort everybody had to make to get here and the fact that it worked uh, for almost everybody. Some people are still caught in the airline system and trying to get here. Um, It was kind of an unbelievable happening, that storm on that particular day. Uh, But for the most part, we have arrived, and so um, as a group now, we'll uh, begin to um, weave together the various themes, even that we uh, began mentioning already. So I want to talk about a whole lot of different things tonight, um, see if I can weave them together into some kind of cohesive whole. To begin with, this statement from, I guess we would call him the philosopher, Jay Krishnamurti, uh, who said, it is the truth that liberates, not your efforts to be free. It is the truth that liberates, not your efforts to be free. And I've always liked that statement because I very much appreciate that sense of trying to create the conditions to see more truly, to see ourselves more honestly, more truly, to see the world not so distorted by our fears, our bias, but more as it truly is. And to experience the liberation that comes automatically, organically, from being in harmony with how things are, rather than at some kind of um, weird, like, angle against, against reality, against truth. So what we do in meditation practice, I think, is really work toward creating those conditions so that we can see more truly so that love can emerge, so that awareness can emerge, to see things as they are. And a lot of what we say creates that kind of condition, that ground for us, is balance. It's being in a state of some balance out of which, without contrivance and without forcefulness and without like giving ourselves a lecture, the truth of things will emerge. And this is such a, a different way of approaching an endeavor or a goal or, or something we want to manifest. Usually, we're so often in more a, a mind state of acquisition, Somehow we are not enough, we do not have enough, we're deficient, we're defective. And if only we could grab this thing, this object, this person, this experience, and if we could somehow hold on to it and keep it, then we'd be okay. And the whole process of meditation is almost like a direct refutation of that, where instead of starting out with the assumption that we are not enough and that we need to have and get and possess 
something and somehow keep it from changing, we start out with the assumption it's a very different vision of, of possibility. We are enough. And that if we could reach underneath the habits of our mind and our fears and um, kind of mindless aggression, we would find something of great beauty. I can remember um, years ago, my uh, friend Joseph Goldstein and I uh, had gone to Houston to visit a friend. And uh, the three of us went out to dinner one night, not to eat in the restaurant, but to order the food and bring it back to this friend's house. So we're hanging out in the restaurant waiting for the food to be done. And Joseph struck up a conversation with the kid who was working behind the counter during which um, the young man disclosed the fact that he had never left Houston in his life, ever, and that his dream was to someday get to Wyoming. So Joseph said to him, well, what, what does Wyoming represent to you? Like, What do you think you'll find there? And, and the young man went into... Um, this great description of like this clear open space, just being unimpeded, unrestrained, unconfined, just that amazing sky, that sense of freedom. And Joseph looked at him and said, there's an inner Wyoming too, you know. And the kid said, that's freaky. And he walked away. (laughs) So it's not a message we're always up for hearing. But the basic assumption from the Buddha on down is that there is an inner Wyoming and that we can access it in a very real and direct way. It's not a question of being excluded. It's not just for the special people or the other people or the lucky people, that this is a capacity within everybody to understand our lives, to not just live mechanically to be free, to not be bound to the habits of the past or maybe the self-image we have always carried before. We have a capacity to open, to connect, to love, to care, to understand, all of us. And the idea is that this capacity, as is taught, is innate to our being, and it is never, ever destroyed. It may be covered over, it may be hidden, from view, it may be obscured, it may be something we do not trust, for sure, but it's there. And so we practice meditation not from this kind of desperate place of wanting something we don't have, but rather from the sense that within us is this capacity and we can nurture it, we can create the conditions for it to grow, to flower, to unfold. So that is, is very much the spirit of the practice. I can remember a few years ago, I was um, <clears throat> in Northampton, actually, not too far away from here. And I went to um, go there because I went to a bookstore where a friend was doing a reading of, of his latest book. And as we were sitting there in the bookstore, we could hear a, a demonstration coming down the street where people would be screaming, what do we want? 
And then I couldn't hear what they wanted. It was like, blah, blah, blah. you know, just a sort of mumble. And then they would scream, when do we want it? And there would be this resounding yell, now. And then they say, what do we want? Blah, 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 blah. What do they want? You know, which I never heard. I completely ignored my friend trying to do his reading in straining to hear what in the world they wanted. But what was clear was that they wanted it now. And that is so much more common uh, a kind of feeling for us than the other. (laughs) The ability to be more patient, to plant seeds, to let qualities unfold, to have confidence in our innate capacity. That's much less common than that sense of we want it, whatever it is, now. And so that's one of the reasons meditation is kind of challenging. On the face of it, it doesn't seem that hard to do. You know, you sit down, you feel the breath, or you sit down, you recite some phrases silently. What could be so difficult? But it is difficult in part because it's actually quite radical. It's so different from the ways we have been accustomed to relate to our experience. And so we discover that it's really very different from grabbing and having and wanting. It's much more about qualities of balance, learning to let go, to be kind to ourselves, to move to a place where we're not trying so hard to have something we don't have, but perhaps to completely change our relationship to what is happening already which is an enormous change. So we, we forge an entirely new approach to our experience instead of bringing in all those same judgments. They may appear, but we learn a different relationship to those as well. So they're not so dominant. And we have an ability to be different with the many things that come our way. Even in those of you who've been here um, through today or earlier or have practiced before, know the emphasis that we've given to even just simply being able to let go and begin again. You know, you sit down with an object of meditation, say the breath as we've been doing, and you're gone far, far, far away um, in the ways that we've talked about that moment when you recognize that your attention has wandered being a very crucial moment in the practice because that's the moment, one of the moments we have the chance to be really different and not to be so harsh or judgmental, to be kinder to ourselves, to be able to let go to be able to begin again. It's really very important. Rather than having an image of practice almost as a kind of frozen perfection where we will strain and strive and struggle and someday get to this great experience and then freeze it. It's both more realistic and truthful and also more powerful to understand practice as learning to gracefully begin again, 
over and over again. I can remember many years ago, I went to um, Utah to this uh, yoga retreat um, with uh, this fantastic yoga teacher, John Friend. Um, And it was me and, I don't know, maybe like 30 people, all of whom were incredible Hatha yogis who could do these amazing pretzel-like poses and a moment's notice. And and even besides that, they knew the Sanskrit names for everything. And one day, um, John was, he was demonstrating a pose. And in the middle of the demonstration, he made this kind of funny movement. And then he just sort of went on. Then when he came out of the pose, he said to the group, what happened there? And all these other people in the room started offering these Sanskrit names for that little funny movement. They said, oh, you started to do this or that asana, and then you changed to a little bit of that asana, and then you went to that asana, all in Sanskrit. Um, And then he looked at me and he said, what happened there? And I said, I think you fell. And he said, you're right, I fell. And he said, and then I started over. He said, that's good yoga. It's that movement toward beginning again, toward coming to balance, not solidifying that moment when we've been out of balance, identifying with it. I'm such a bad person, but rather letting go, starting over. That's good yoga. That's good meditation. That's really very much the the spirit with which we work. We're always working with balance, talking about balance, beginning again, coming back to balance. Someone once asked the Buddha, how did you cross the flood, meaning the flood of suffering? How did you cross the flood? And the Buddha replied, I crossed the flood not lingering and not hurrying. If I were to have lingered, I would have drowned. If I were to have hurried, I would have been swept away. Not lingering and not hurrying, just one step at a time. And when we lose it, we begin again. That's really the process. If we can come to that kind of balance, things will evolve all by themselves. There's a a balance that is quite classical that is always talked about between states of calm or concentration, tranquility on the one side, and then states of energy or effort or wakefulness or interest on the other side. Meditation really develops both. And it's, it's very common for one side or another to be somewhat stronger than the other, And so we work also to bring that into balance. We learn to let go, to be more at ease, to relax. But we don't want to get so relaxed we're just sleeping all the time. We're also connecting. We're waking up. We're paying attention. We're opening to qualities, to experiences that may be new for us. It's both sides of things. We make effort, but it's balanced effort just to be in this moment, to come back to the object of meditation, 
It's not a question of straining or um, struggling, trying to make something happen that isn't happening. It doesn't make it happen, actually. It certainly doesn't make it happen any faster. We just do the process as we need to do. I was in uh, Burma one year, many years ago, actually, and um, I was doing loving-kindness practice. I was doing walking meditation, and I felt this tremendous tension, this incredible strain, so much so that I actually stopped and I asked myself, what's going on? And I realized I was trying to do the practice and make it work rather than just do the practice and let it work. What we need to do is be wholehearted, be committed, be able to begin again, not judge ourselves so much, and let the process take its course. It's like letting nature take its course. Joseph tells a story sometimes about, uh, I think he was about nine years old, and he grew his first, and I believe his only garden. And he said he would get so impatient when the little green fluffy stuff would come up on top of the carrots that he'd pull them up to help them grow faster. So it wasn't much of a harvest, as you can imagine. And we can be like that too. We need to do what we need to do and let go of the rest. Let nature take its course. Let things unfold. Let the Dharma or the truth of things take its own time. The example is always given um, in the Buddhist texts for this kind of effort in terms of um, tuning a musical instrument, like a lute, as they would say in those days. If you make the string too tight, it will have the wrong sound. If it's too loose, it will have the wrong sound. It's the nature of effort. We want to be here unstintingly, because how else would we know, really, if something is useful for us or not, if we haven't really done it fully? But at the same time, it's not a question of dominating our experience or being in control or making anything happen. Just let it happen. We're planting the seeds of the garden. We don't have to pull up the carrots before their time. And so in that sense, um, there's a certain kind of peace with practice. Because we're allowing and unfolding to be as it is. Many of you have heard, um, no doubt, the story of uh, when we first came to look at this building um, over 30 years ago now. Um, Tomorrow's our official anniversary of moving in, but we we first came to look at it in December 1975, just before Christmas. And um, we weren't really sure about whether at all, whether we should buy it or not. Um, and in our, our state of indecision, we went to downtown Barry. Some of you have been there and some of you have passed through um, if you came that direction. And you know that uh, the town of Barry is a very classic New England town with a town green in the center of it. And um, 
then the town green had a monument upon it which had uh, the Barry town motto engraved on the monument. And it turned out that the Barry town motto is tranquil and alert. So we took a look at that and we said, okay, there's an omen. Any town that has a motto like tranquil and alert should have a meditation center in it. <laughs> because not only are those the qualities that we develop, but that's the balance that we're working with. To be tranquil and also alert. To be relaxed and also connected. That's really what we're doing. So if we're not grabbing for experience, we're allowing things to unfold, what do we do in a functional sense? A lot of what happens in terms of the the doing side, you could say, of meditation has to do with these two qualities of mind. Uh, One is called aiming attention and the other is sustaining attention. We aim our attention toward an object in the present moment, and we simply connect. The example that's used nearly constantly in Asia is that of aiming a fork at a piece of food, like a piece of broccoli on a plate. If you take the fork and you wave it around in the air, you're not going to have a lot of lunch. So you just do like that. And then the next quality we need is a very um, careful and balanced modulation of our energy. If there's too little energy, it's like the fork hangs there in your hand. But if there's too much energy, it's like you take the fork and you bash it through the broccoli and everything goes flying all over the place. So that rather simple example is used to describe almost the technical side of meditation practice of this kind. We have an object in the present moment. We aim the attention toward just one moment's experience of it, just now, and we connect. That's what we do. Out of that comes a state of great balance. Out of that state of balance comes all the good things that we talk about, of understanding and truthfulness and love and so on. We aim and we connect. And we completely lose it for however long, We realize that, we do it again. In mindfulness practice, we may be aiming and connecting to a moment's breath, this one breath, or step in the walking, or physical sensation, or emotion, whatever is predominant in the moment. In the metta practice, in the loving-kindness practice, what we are aiming at is one moment's expression of metta, or loving-kindness, usually through the repetition, the silent repetition of certain phrases. We aim the attention toward just one phrase. The phrases are the articulation of the heart. Metta, uh, usually translated as loving-kindness, sometimes as love, literally means friendship. So the practice is one of developing the art of friendship, first of all, toward ourselves, 
And that means all aspects of ourselves, not just those parts of ourselves we like and we proudly present to the world, but those parts of ourselves we don't like all that much and those parts of ourselves that are sort of hidden from us. And ultimately, friendship with all beings everywhere, with all of life, in its boundlessness. The word loving-kindness is is the most common translation of metta, um, and I think it's it's probably quite a good one. Uh, my concern about it is that it's such um, an unusual phrase. You don't tend to hear loving-kindness thrown around in ordinary conversation, and so my fear is that it makes the quality itself seem a little kind of precious in the bad sense of the word and arcane and removed from the doings of day-to-day life. Uh, The translation as love um, is also quite complicated because we certainly mean so many different things when we use that word. Sometimes when we say love, um, it really is frankly a medium of exchange you know, I will love you as long as the following 15 conditions are met or, or you love me in return and say it in this particular way. And once I was using that example um, about the following 15 conditions and someone in the group called out, only 15? <laughs> you know, so however many we may have in store. And that's not to condemn that state, you know, um, But the fragility of that, the incredible vulnerability of that, what happens when our desires aren't met, when we're disappointed, when we've disappointed ourselves? Can we love ourselves anyway? You know, the quality of friendship is very different from that leaning on an experience or a person or a sense of control which turns out really to be an exercise in futility. So it's something quite different than that kind of conditionality. It's friendship. I use the example um, in the last retreat of how many of us would say we know somebody and really care deeply for them, uh, somebody whom the world by and large considers really obnoxious, or difficult, so much so that people from the outside can sometimes say, what are you, you know, why are you so bonded with that person? They're awful. But in our hearts, it's like they mean something to us. We care about them. It's not pretending that they are just perfect and, you know, there is no problem with their behavior. It's not that at all, but it's friendship. We see things not from a stance of self and other or us or them, but with a a genuine care and concern. It reminds me of, um, I had a friend who was a a therapist, and by reputation an extremely good therapist. And she told me the story about somebody coming to see her once, wanting to be her client, and she really didn't like him. She didn't like a lot of his behavior. She didn't like his political views. And so she said to him, I don't think it's such a good idea. You know, I think you should find somebody else. But he really wanted to see her. And so finally she said okay. 
And she talked about the transformation in her attitude toward him when he became her client. The way she put it was, he became one of mine. It's like we were on the same team. It's not like she liked his behavior anymore or she approved of it anymore or she didn't see it as problematic, but there was a different sensibility. It's like she cared about his suffering and the suffering he was causing. She wanted to see if she could be of help. It wasn't like he was this alien creature over there. He was one of hers. And I thought when she told me the story about how in the Buddhist tradition there's this concept called the bodhisattva, a being who is dedicated to the experience of liberation for the sake of all beings everywhere. So I thought of the bodhisattva, and I thought, what an incredible job description, you know? What if everybody was one of mine in that sense of not holding back or creating the other out there? So this is is very much in the nature of metta. It's not that we overlook very real problems or we feel uncaring about trying to change things, but our perspective is inclusive rather than exclusive. Think about what is created in this world, both within families, within countries, by that sense of us and them. I mean, how can people hurt other people so badly except by objectifying them in some way and having created that divide? So the worldview of metta is one of inclusivity. And it is actually a worldview, much more than a, an emotional state or a feeling state or certainly much more than a, a kind of sentimentality. It's a view. It's a view of ourselves that is not the usual kind of limited, constrained view as someone so incapable of love or change. It's a view of our connection to others that's much more truthful in terms of its recognition of how connected we all are. It's a view of possibility. That's the sense of loving kindness. With, with states like loving kindness as they're taught, um, they're talked about as having a near enemy and a far enemy. The far enemy is a state that's clearly opposite. It's so different, you'd never confuse uh, the far enemy for the, the state that you're talking about. Whereas the near enemy is something that's close enough so that it actually would be pretty easy to confuse the two, but that they're really very different. So the far enemy of metta or loving kindness is the state of aversion, which means anger and fear, both of which energetically have the quality of trying to push away, to deny, to avoid, whereas loving kindness has the energetic quality of being with of connecting to, of acknowledging, of opening to. So they're, they're very uh, different. In fact, they say the Buddha first taught loving-kindness practice as an antidote to fear. The legend around that is that 
um, this group of monks came to him asking to be sent to a forest to meditate. And he sent them off to the forest. And it said in the legend um, that the forest was inhabited by tree spirits. And the tree spirits didn't like those monks. They didn't like them messing around in their forest. And so they tried to frighten them away. And they, they appeared as these terrible ghoulish visions and they made these horrible shrieking sounds and all of that. And sure enough, the monks became absolutely terrified and they fled. They ran back to the Buddha and they said, oh, Lord Buddha, please send us to a different forest. And the Buddha said, well, I'm going to send you to the very same forest, but I'm going to give you the only protection that you'll need. And that was the first teaching of loving kindness practice. So he told them, go back to the forest and don't just recite in a kind of rote way, but actually practice the sense of loving kindness um, for these beings. And so as these stories all end so happily, they say that the monks went back to that forest and they did loving kindness practice and the tree spirits were so delighted by the energy filling their forest that they decided they were really awfully happy that those monks were there and they fed them and took care of them and so on you'll notice that these stories always end happily. You know, whether one gets into the legendary features or not, or believes in tree spirits, um, the idea is that the Buddha taught the practice as the antidote to fear. Even in difficult circumstance, even in painful circumstance, we have the protection through the force of loving kindness, which allows us to meet what is, rather than deny a relationship to what is. So the far enemy is anger or fear. The near enemy is a state of attachment, which is close but really different. It's in effect, you know, as we do loving-kindness practice, which we'll begin formally tomorrow, we do it through the recitation of certain phrases, which are actually up on the board now, Um, as samples, sample phrases, uh, through phrases like, may you be happy. Now, metta is considered like a freely given gift. It's like, may you be happy. Attachment is a little more like, may you be happy by tomorrow morning in the following 10 ways. Because you need to, you know. Sometimes when I'm trying to understand the state of attachment as is specifically meant in the teachings as a source of so much suffering, I I mentally substitute the word control for the word attachment. And I think that's providing a good sense of what's meant and why it is so much the cause of so much suffering. So as we go through these days, we'll explore metta, we'll explore the far enemy, we'll explore the near enemy, and grow in some confidence as to the the sphere or the the terrain of metta itself. I want to just go into this kind of model for action that the Buddha talked about, because I think it also... Um, provides a sense of the transformative power of metta. 
Starting with the worldview, the vision we have of things. Are we alone or are we connected? Are we part of a bigger fabric of life or are we somehow abandoned by life? Can we open to that connection? It's a different worldview. That's where we actually begin. And based on that, the way we see the world arises um, this force in the mind known as intention or motivation. And in the teachings, the intentions behind our actions are considered really very important because that's where the energy, the potency, um, we would say the karmic force of the action actually lies. It's in the intention, the heart space giving rise to what we do or what we say, and that's considered really crucial. Um, It's important that we be sensitive enough to understand where we're coming from in different situations, and we use mindfulness to be more and more aware of that. And it's said that practices like loving-kindness practice will transfigure, they will transform our field of intention. So if in general we have been coming from a place of fear and we do a practice like loving-kindness, then in general we will be coming from a place of connection. It happens in that way, not because we're in some cumbersome situation and we are insisting on acting like being a loving person even though we hate what's going on. It's not pretentious and it's not phony. Years ago, I read um, this interview with a, a former beauty queen who's Miss Kentucky of like the 40s or the 50s or something. And all these years later, they had um, this interview with her and they asked her what she had to say about life. And um, Ms. Kentucky said, the former Ms. Kentucky said, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of smiling. And I thought, oh, well, look at that. You know, like 30 years of just smiling for the camera completely vacuous, disconnected from whatever is going on within, an absolute pretense. And that, sad to say, is how many people regard the force of love or loving kindness, that it's like a veneer that one will be placing upon some very seething and difficult emotions, that it's something we act as though it, it could not be a true and, and deep state. But when we talk about metta, we're not talking about pretending anything. It's certainly not becoming Miss Kentucky. But rather, doing the practice, seeing that field of intention transforming so that we're coming from a different place in what we do or what we say automatically, spontaneously. It just happens that way. So the next part of action that's talked about after intention is the skillfulness or unskillfulness with which we act, um, which is really based on our best guess, almost, of what is most appropriate in a situation. I may, for example, out of a beautiful motive, genuinely beautiful motive, want to give you a book. 
say. But I might take a moment and think, well, you know, I only have one book. Maybe this is the kind of thing best done privately. Maybe I should take you aside. Maybe I should do it in this way. I just want to draw the distinction between those two aspects of action because so many times people have told me, and I think it's a pretty common way of thinking, that we're one to have a loving heart. We're one to be coming from a loving place. The stream of action that would be available is really very small because we don't understand that the skillfulness or unskillfulness of our action is based on discernment. It's based on wisdom. Sometimes some very fierce-looking action is coming from a very loving place. So what we're talking about in the development of loving-kindness is not turning into Ms. Kentucky, where we just smile no matter what is going on. We act as clearly and as forcefully as we understand is appropriate in any situation. But where we are coming from doesn't need to be that sense of division and alienation and hatred and fear that is so common. Where are we coming from? It's very important to understand the distinction between those two things because it is so easy to imagine that love is some kind of weakness and that we will not be strong, whether for ourselves or for others. But that isn't necessarily the case at all. Several years ago, it was a year, it was actually a lot like this year, where the germs were really big, and everybody was just so sick. And I was amongst them. I was really very sick. And uh, I had bronchitis, and every time I'd start to get well, I'd relapse, and then I'd start to get well, and I'd relapse. And then I finally, months later, really started to get well. And I was living in New York City, and walking down the street one day, when I heard this woman's voice say, I've been really sick all winter. So naturally, I felt a kind of kinship with her, and I turned around, and she was giving a whole bunch of money to this street person, this guy sitting on the sidewalk, She was handing him a whole bunch of money, and she went on to say, I was really sick all winter. I had pneumonia several times. She said, every time I'd start to get better, I'd have a relapse. Then I'd start to get better, and I'd have a relapse. And now I'm really starting to get better, and I just wanted to share the joy. So she handed him this whole bunch of money. So I was standing there, and I thought, isn't that odd? I was really sick all winter, too. Maybe I should turn around and give him a whole bunch more money and say, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, (laughs) I had a bronchial problem too, which I actually didn't do. But what was so amazing to me about that encounter was that I had just walked right by that guy, and it didn't occur to me for one moment to share the joy. And what had happened for her was that she walked by him with the recognition that his life had something to do with hers. Now, whether one gives money to a street person or not is a matter of discernment. It's not that there's a single right way of being. 
We try to understand the situation to our best ability. Maybe we act in one way or maybe we act in another way. But that recognition of connection is what is really most important. So that is really how we're working, not to make our behavior fit a kind of um, squeamish little model of sickly sweetness, but to genuinely be coming from a place of seeing our connection. However, we then decide to respond. We're actually more free and more courageous in our choices rather than being more limited. So we do the loving-kindness practice. It transforms our field of intention. And I'll just close with tying those two aspects together in terms of the creation of balance and the practice of metta. The most important thing is that sense of aiming and connecting. We do that moment by moment. We don't have to worry for now about the bigger picture. We can let the process take its own course. One of the uh, very simple examples from the Buddhist teaching, and many of the examples are extremely simple, but one of the examples I've always liked a lot from the first moment I heard it was um, the Buddha saying, our minds will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. Our minds will get filled with qualities like mindfulness or loving-kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. And I just loved that example from the first moment I heard it because from the first moment I heard it, I could see myself standing by that bucket doing one of two things. One was looking inside and fantasizing about how fantastic it was going to be when it was completely filled and I was fully enlightened, floating down the streets of New York, but not bothering to add the very next drop. Just kind of lost in that story about my someday enlightenment. And of course I could see myself doing the opposite, standing by the bucket and looking inside and saying, ooh, it's kind of bleak in there. It's pretty empty. It's never going to get filled. And once again, not doing what I needed to do, which was adding the very next drop. And then, of course, since then, other uh, elaborations of that have come up in my mind, like standing by the bucket and completely ignoring it, looking over into someone else's bucket and saying, how are they doing over there, you know? But our minds will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment. The way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. What's important is this very moment because it counts. And so we add a drop and we add a drop and we get completely distracted for a while and then we remember and we add a drop and we add a drop. It's very important. We can only be here. We can only be doing the practice one moment at a time. And so these moments are, are very valuable, they're very precious, and it's all we've got. On the other hand, it's all we need to have. 
whatever situation, whatever we encounter in our practice, and we encounter many, many, many things, some beautiful, wondrous states, and some um, really uh, surprising vestiges of the past, maybe states we thought we got rid of long ago, suddenly they're back. All kinds of things happen in practice, and everything is a part of the practice. It's not that the the challenging and difficult states mean something has gone terribly wrong. It's all a part of meeting the present moment with greater awareness and greater love, and so it's all quite appropriate. So this is how we add a drop. It's not by having a seemingly great experience. It's by responding to our experience with greater awareness, greater love, greater compassion in this very moment, whatever might be presenting itself. So let's sit together for a few minutes. This talk was given by Sharon Salzberg at Insight Meditation Society on February 13, 2006. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.